Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You're listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, The Family of God. This past Sunday, we were really focusing in on the theology of adoption. The title of our sermon was Adopted, The Truth About God's Family. What we want to begin to realize is that many of the misconceptions that we have about adopting children today is rooted in a flawed understanding of our own adoption into the family of God. So we pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you join us studying the doctrine of adoption from Galatians 3 verse 26 through Galatians 4 verse 7. Now if you were with us last week, we uh, talked about um, all, having an all over our own adoption. And so last week was really about setting the standard for why. Why is this important? Why is it so important for us uh, to focus on adoption, on foster care, and on respite care? But this morning, we want to look at really the theology of adoption. We Listen, we can talk, we, well, we can have uh, ministries come and share about ways for us to get involved. But until we understand the deep-rooted theology of the way God adds to His family, until we understand the deep-rooted theology of adoption, then we'll never have a, an appreciation for our own responsibilities to be involved in these sorts of ministries. And so this morning we want to look at what does it really mean for us to be adopted into God's family? And then how should that truth about God's family, family formulate our understanding of adoption, of foster care, of respite care, of all of those things here and now? Now, of course, as Christians, I think every one of us would agree that we want to view things the same way that God views things. We want to view adoption the same way God views adoption. We want to view the orphan the same way God views the orphan. We want to, we want to view the mother who is considering abortion the same way that God views the mother who is considering abortion. But before we'll ever open up our families to the idea of adoption, foster care, or respite care, we must understand how God has opened His family to us through adoption. And so here's kind of the big idea that I want you to see this morning. In God's family, in God's adoption, you're not just cared for in His family, right? We're, we're not just cared for by the family. No, in God's adoption, you are actually part of the family. You see, there's an important distinction there that goes back to the question I asked just a moment ago. Is it possible to love an adopted child the same way we love an, a biological child? If the answer is no, then you just bring a child into your home and they come under the care of the family. But if the answer is yes, then it's not just that the child comes into the family, but it's that the child is a part of the family. And that's exactly the way that adoption works in God's family. You are not just cared for by the family. When you're adopted by God, you are actually in the family. Now here's the thing. The way that you and I view adoption is rooted in the way you and I view our relationship with God. As a result of that very, uh, that very fundamental, uh, rudimentary concept, 
we want to really dive into what it means to be adopted this morning, adopted specifically into the family of God. And so once we understand this truth, we're going to be ready to engage in all of these ministries that will present themselves over the next several months and years for our church. Now this morning our passage is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. And we need to do a little bit of work here to, to set up uh, the context. What this, what this passage of Scripture is doing is really painting for us this immaculate picture of the theology of adoption. Now, since we're approaching this series a little bit differently than we normally would, if, if you've been with us any amount of time in the past, you'll know that we're typically working through books of the Bible. Just now we're working through the book of John, and we're, we're taking a short break to, uh, to, to really understand the family of God here. But since we're not necessarily working through books of the Bible at a time, it's important for us to sort of lay out the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians that's really leading up to this point at the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter Four. So, as Paul's writing to the Galatian church, he's really writing concerning this clear understanding on salvation. And so as he's writing, trying to make sure they've got this clear understanding of salvation, one of the sort of predominant focuses becomes this uh, theology that we know as justification. And I think it's actually pretty easy to sum up Paul's instruction in this letter on justification. It's simply this, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now that's something you've probably heard before, uh, but that really does sum up Paul's instruction. So, so we have to, as we start to understand justification, we have to understand this before we understand adoption. We think of this as being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the formula of salvation. Okay, if we don't, if this isn't the salvation that we proclaim, then we're proclaiming some type of salvation that is not in the Bible. Salvation only comes, justification only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so in Galatians 1, Paul is confronting the issue of legalism. And, and he's doing that by informing us of God's, uh, informing us that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. See, that's really at the root of legalism. We're seeing that addressed in the Gospel of John. Legalism says that, that God's pleasure in me is going to be based on my performance for God. Paul's addressing the same type of legalism uh, to the Galatian church, and he, he's wanting them to understand that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him, but God's pleasure in us is based on Christ's performance for us. You see the difference there. It's not based on our performance for God. It's based on Christ's performance for us. That theme continues into Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and himself for me. And so then we come to chapter 3. And Paul covers about 2,000 years of history in Galatians chapter 3. He covers the history from Abraham to Moses and then to Christ. And he does this in order to show that the climax of all history centers around Christ. So what he's saying is that the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses all point to Jesus. That was the point of all of it. It was the point of the promise. It was the point of the law. And now he's wanting the church in Galatia to see, he's wanting us to see Jesus completes the promise to Abraham and he fulfills the law given to Moses. 
Everything's been working towards Jesus, right? That's why we say from Genesis to Revelation, the entire scripture is about Christ. And so in all of this, Paul is setting forth this doctrine of justification. So just to be really clear, make sure we understand what justification is. I, I know we've said it's, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but, but allow me to define it for you this way. Justification is the gracious act of God by which He declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the act by which God graciously declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, we have to get this this morning, even though we're studying the doctrine of adoption, if we don't understand justification, we can't get to adoption. If we don't understand how we're justified before God, we'll never be able to understand what it means to be adopted by God. As a matter of fact, Luther said of the doctrine of justification that it's the doctrine upon which the entire church will stand or fall. Calvin said it's the hinge upon which everything turns. And so what does all of this mean? It means by grace, through faith in Christ, we are right before God the judge. I want to make sure you get that this morning. Justification makes us right before God the judge. Now, it's really not possible to overemphasize the doctrine of justification. But at the same time, here's what we have to realize. Justification is not the end of the gospel. In fact, it's the beginning of the application of the gospel, but justification is not the end of the gospel. In fact, justification may not even be the greatest truth of the gospel. It is a great truth, no doubt. But if you will, allow me to borrow from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, for just a moment. Here's what he says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. A little bit later on he goes on to say that justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with His acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. Packer says, we have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this gospel, and, and this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. Justification is offering us hope. It's offering us restoration with our maker. A little bit later on, Packer says, but this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. So we see the doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge, right? I said that's very important. Justification makes you right before God the judge. As the church, we understand that Scripture teaches that God is judge. Amen? He will judge the righteous. He will judge the wicked. He is judge. And so we need to be made right before God the judge. That's justification. Where you are made right. right? Where you are proclaimed not guilty before God the judge. But the doctrine of adoption means that we are loved by God the Father. 
And so you see these two natures of God colliding together and forming this relationship with His children. The doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge. The doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God the Father. So we're made right before God the judge in justification, but in adoption, we are loved by God the Father. And so you, see, you, you sort of see the difference there. In justification, we're getting a legal picture, right? It's, a, it's this sort of legal transaction. This, this, this legal pronouncement is being made. God the judge makes a legal pronouncement on, on our guilt. But in adoption, it's as if the judge doesn't just sit on the throne, doesn't just sit on the bench and say, you're not guilty, but he comes down off of the bench, he puts his arm around you, and he says, not only are you not guilty, but I want you to come into my home. It's not just, okay, you're not guilty, go try to do better next time. I don't want to ever see you again, right? It's not only are you not guilty, but you are invited into my family, and I will show you how to live. I will teach you what to do, right? This is being invited in. This is being adopted in to the family of God, where God says, come home with me as a son. Come home with me as a daughter. To borrow from Packer again, he says, To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. You see, this is the truth that we're considering in this passage before us this morning. To quote Packer one final time, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I agree with Packer. If we don't understand adoption, we don't really understand Christianity. We don't really understand what it means to be Christian, to live Christian, to do Christian things. I invite you to read with me again our passage of Scripture this morning is Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 26. I'll read through verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul writes to the Galatians, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. Let's pray together. God, we believe that this is your word. Fully inspired, fully inerrant, fully applicable for our lives. And so God, this morning as we consider this all-important truth, the doctrine of adoption, Lord, if there is anyone who has not been adopted by you, may today be the day they receive adoption as your sons and daughters. 
But Lord, for all of those who have been adopted, may our appreciation, may our understanding, may our thanksgiving, and may our willingness to serve be only increased as we begin to understand to greater depths and to farther lengths what it means to be in the family of God. And may it elicit a praise from our hearts unlike any praise has ever been offered before to understand that not only have you justified us as judge, but you have loved us as Father. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you notice, this passage really builds on itself to resolve some very important tension for us. It's as if tension is presented and then resolved. And that resolution presents a little bit more tension and then another resolution and a little bit more tension and then a little bit more resolution. Now, it first reveals that the present reality of being children of the Father, right? And what it means to, to what, this, this first reality of being in the family of God. Then Paul goes on to clarify how this present reality has been made possible. And then finally, he points us towards what all of this means for the future. So if you turn your attention back to verses 26 and 29 in chapter 3, we'll notice that that Paul is sort of summarizing everything he's talked about previously. Uh, All of those things, all that context I laid out for you just a moment ago, he's summarizing all of that in order to describe the present reality of what it means to be justified. So that the privilege, sort of the, the, the prevailing thought, excuse me, the prevailing thought here is that there is no distinction, right? There's no distinction for those who are in Christ. That's the prevailing thought in these last few verses of, verse, of chapter 3, right? Because, because God has ruled as judge on the justified. Because He has ruled not guilty, there is no longer a distinction. There's not a distinction in social class. There's not a distinction in net worth. There's not a distinction in, uh, in gender. Now that's not to say God doesn't care about genders. What He's talking about here is an equality in the family of God, an equality of justification, an equality of adoption. Where if you are in Christ, you are in Christ, right? Your primary identity is in Christ, not in any of those other things. But there's something very important, a, a, a very important sort of hermeneutical, that's interpretive uh, issue we have to address here. Now, I prom- it probably doesn't feel like this to everyone, but I promise uh, I, the only time I ever venture, venture in to Greek language is if I feel it's very important. And this may be the most important, uh, the, the most Im- important interpretive issue in Greek that we've addressed in my time here. I want you to look at that word children in verse 26. That word is huios, huios. It's interpreted absolutely rightly in chapter 4, but there is really only one in literal, interpre- literal interpretation excuse me, for that word huios. That's son, not children, son. You say, oh, okay, preacher, let's make a mountain out of a mole here. here. Why, why is that important? Aren't, aren't children sons? This is incredibly important. If you don't understand that Paul means son in verse 26, you're not really going to appreciate the picture that Paul is painting in the rest of this passage. I mean, I could go into some ideas of why I think uh, English interpreters decided to interpret this children here in the King James. Other translations do and translate it sons, but we don't need to get into all that this morning. What we need to understand is what Paul is doing here. The reason it's so important to understand that that word huios is sons and not children is because what Paul is doing is he's building out this theology of sonship. You say, well, what's the theology of sonship? He wants you and I to understand. Please don't miss this. If you have been justified by Christ, 
then you are in Christ. You are identified with Christ. It's not that you've been adopted into the family of God and you're a little bit lesser than anyone else. It's not that you've been adopted into the family of God and like Jesus' sacrifice for you, Jesus' justification of you was just enough to barely get you in. What he wants you to see is this theology of sonship. And we're going to see it play out at the end of the passage. You'll see how all this works together. But if you are in Christ, if you have been adopted into the family of God, then you have been adopted as sons just as Jesus is son. This is important, church. Please don't miss this. It's not the reason, the reason, the reason uh, God is using the word sons isn't because he's a misogynist. Okay? It's, not, it's, it's, it's not that liberal theologians, if, you, if it's even possible to be that, um, will say that God is a misogynist. No, God actually refers to the church as a bride. This isn't an issue of gender here. This is an issue of being identified with the son. Right? And so whether you are male or female, it doesn't matter. You can be saved. You can be justified. You can be adopted into the family of God. And as we will see in just a little bit, co-heirs with Christ. And so then whatever is promised to Christ is promised to you. It's this beautiful theology of sonship that we could be adopted in and all of the rights, all of the privileges that belong to Jesus belong to you and me. That's good news. That's really, really good news. That very literally, Paul could write to the Galatians, for ye are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. But notice the progression of thought here. You are sons by, by or through faith. We don't become sons because of our familial genealogy we don't become sons because of our political stature, our social position, our net worth, our national descent. We become sons through faith. In fact, faith is the conduit by which all other distinctions are filtered out. But again, notice the progression of thought. It isn't just random or misplaced faith. It's specifically faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the New Testament uses a variety of metaphors to describe what Paul means by that little phrase, in Christ. One of those metaphors we actually looked at last week, the, the metaphor of abiding, right? The theology of abiding. Paul is talking about an intimate union with Christ that is affected for every believer by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings us to verse 27. I just want to clear this up really quickly. Paul isn't advocating here for regenerative baptism. Regenerative baptism uh, suggests or believes that uh, salvation actually happens some form of salvation actually happens in the baptismal waters. Maybe the Catholic Church would be the most predominant that you would be familiar with uh, that would advocate for such a doctrine. Paul is not advocating for regenerative baptism. right? Paul is not suggesting that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. right? Paul is very consistent in his theology of baptism. Right? It's an ordinance of the church. It's not a sacrament. It's not something that you must do in order to be saved. It's not something that you must do in order for Christ to be imparted for you. It's something you should do because you have been saved. And so he's not advocating for that. His point here is that through baptism, we make a public declaration of where we stand. Right? It is a rite by which we mark ourselves off from the world and with the body of Christ. In baptism, we say publicly, I've been adopted into a new family. I'm no longer a part of everything out there. I'm a part of the family of God. 
And so that leads us to the elimination of distinctions in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You see this building of the theology of sonship. You are one in Christ Jesus. There is no longer any distinction in Christ. So now we come to chapter 4. And we understand now that there's no distinction in Christ, but, but how's it possible? Right? That gives us the present reality, but again, I said it's going to reveal another tension. The other tension, how, is the, how in the world, how in the world is it possible? Now, you've got to understand, and, and, and this culture that's going on here in, in probably 50 to 80 B.C., we won't dive in depths, into the depths of, of, of dates here, but the culture that's going on is a culture that is, that is very fixed on stature, right? Political stature matters, social stature matters, financial stature matters. Maybe in some ways things haven't changed so much, right? So we have to understand how radical of a statement this is. That a servant could be one with a master. That a rich person could be on the same level as a poor person. That an orphan could be on the same level as a royal family. Right? This is, this is countercultural. Then it's countercultural now. And so, how is it possible that this could be true? Well, it's only possible through adoption. So, I want you to see what's happening in verses one through five. We were adopted from the law, right, as children of wrath, but now we get it right this time by Christ to be sons of the Father. Right? We're adopted from the law as children of wrath. Before Christ, we are children of wrath. We are under, under the, the, the punishment of the law, if you will, but we've been adopted by Christ to be sons of the Father. David Platt once pointed out that these five verses reveal the three conditions that, we, that must be met for adoption. I think these are so important to understanding the theology of adoption. First, Platt suggested that adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. Someone who comes at the right time. Notice, notice all of the qualifications here that Jesus meets for our adoption. He comes at the right time. Now, if you talk to anyone, uh, we've got some family who have went through the process of adoption, international adoption, uh, which in some ways can probably be easier, but in some ways can be much harder uh, than adopting domestically. But if you talk to anyone who's went through the process, they'll tell you that one of the most difficult things is the waiting, right? Trying to work out the timing, the paperwork, all of this. It's like do something and then wait. Do something else and then wait. It's just like this grueling process of timing. But it has to happen at the right time. It has to happen in the right way. All the boxes have to be checked. All the proper provisions have to be put in place. And so in the same way, God has sent His Son at the right time. Notice verse 4 of chapter 4. When the fullness of time was come. Or we might say, when the time came to completion. Right? This all means that God's timing was no accident. It wasn't like 2,000 years ago, God was just hanging out. And He's like, huh, today would be a good day. Go on, Jesus. Right? It wasn't this accident where he was just, just like on a whim said, yeah, let's go, ahead, let's go ahead and do this now. No time better than the present, right? It was, it was, it was planned. There was purpose. When, when God sent his son, it was the right time. And it was the right time in several ways. First, I would say it was the right time theologically. Now, I've already mentioned this, but everything that was going on in the Old Testament was leading up to this point. This is, this is, 
This is why the prophet spoke. It's why the law was given. It's why the promise was made. It's why the poetry was, was written. It's what the wisdom literature pointed us to. The promise to Abraham had been given. The law of Moses had done its work to drive men to anticipate Christ. Over 300 prophecies now at this point had been, had been given and it all aimed towards this specific time. We're going to celebrate Christmas in just a few months. What I'm saying is Christmas wasn't an accident. Christmas didn't just happen uh, on a whim. It was the culmination of a plan devised in the eternal counsel of God before the creation of the world. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 1.4. So it was the right time theologically, but also it was the right time religiously. It was the right time religiously. Listen, the paganism of ancient Rome and the idolatry that pervaded the Roman Empire had taken the culture of Jesus' day to all new lows. They could have really said in Jesus' day, it's worse now than it's ever been. It was as bad as they could have possibly remembered or probably even imagined. But here's the thing that's interesting about when Jesus came. Spiritual hunger was not just evident among the Jewish people. The Jewish people were longing for the Messiah. Now we see in the Gospel of John, they're like constantly missing it, but they're longing for it. But it wasn't just among the Jewish people. There was a spiritual hunger that dominated the Roman culture landscape as well. And so it was the right time religiously, but it was also the right time culturally. The, the, the Greek language at this point had become common and, and, and really at this point was practically universal in the known world. And so this was going to allow for the spread of the gospel more easily across the known world. And so it was the right time culturally. People were predominantly speaking the same language. But then finally... It was the right time politically. So it was the right time theologically. It was the right time religiously. It was the right time culturally. But it was also the right time politically. The Pax Romana, right? That's the, that's the peace of Rome, the Roman peace. It prevailed in this time. And Roman peace allowed Rome to uh, sort of... It, it meant that they had sort of conquered and, and subdued these surrounding nations. As they conquered and subdued the surrounding nations, it, it resulted in them being able to build roads that permitted travel and made commerce uh, easier. It allowed commerce to flourish. And so now it would be easier not only to communicate the gospel in one language, but it would make it easier to take the gospel to the far corners of the world in these conditions. So it was the right time. It wasn't an accident. God had allowed all of these things. He had orchestrated all of these things to take place so that Christ could come at the right time. Adoption also requires someone who possesses the right qualifications. It requires someone who's willing to step up at the right time, but it also requires someone who has the right qualifications. In order to go through the contemporary adoption process, you have to go through screenings, you have to have fingerprints, uh, background studies, you have to have home studies, all in order to fit the qualifications. But in a much deeper way, Adoption into God's family requires the right qualifications. For instance, who can pay the price for sinners to be saved? The question points to the only possible person in history, Jesus. And so what are His qualifications? First, we see that Jesus is fully human. God sent His Son, Paul tells us, and He was born of a woman in Galatians 4.4. Paul makes the same point in the midst of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2 is just packed theologically. 
But here's how the apostle refers to Christ. I'm paraphrasing here those about six or seven verses in Philippians 2. He says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Then he goes on to say, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, Now Paul's reference to Christ's external form, appearance of a man here, shouldn't be taken that Jesus only appeared to be human. Rather, Paul is referring to the fact that Christ had a physical body like all men. Jesus was both fully divine and He was fully human. Christ had a normal birth, right, complete with a dingy manger, soiled swaddling clothes, and other poor peasants' uh, conditions, just like just like any other poor peasant would have had in Palestine. I love what Luther says of Christianity. He says, does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. It does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. That Christ became one of us. It begins at the bottom. And so we see this. We see that Jesus is fully human, but there's another qualification. He is also fully righteous. Not only was Jesus born of a woman, but He was also, notice again, Galatians 4.4, born under the law. Jesus was born not simply a man, but more specifically, a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home, attending the Jewish synagogue. And He perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law of God. Listen, if Jesus had not been righteous, He would not have been able to redeem unrighteous men. So Jesus came with a purpose, right? God sent His Son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. That's what verse 5 says. But I also want you to notice that He determined to redeem us. Here's how Paul puts it, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise the God and Father of our blessing in the heavens, for He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, In love He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself according to His favor and His will. And so just as a parent takes the initiative to seek out and adopt a child, so it was God's pleasure and will before the creation of the world to set His affection on us. But there's a big difference between the contemporary story of earthly adoption and the biblical story of spiritual adoption. We talked about this a little bit last week. Earthly adoption is often glamorized, right? It's a broken child. It's a, it's a poor child. It's a, it's a needy child. We see the pictures, all of these things. We think about this sweet, precious, innocent child in our country and other countries all over the world. And we think about the need for their adoption. It's, we just think of them as just waiting to be adopted by a family. And that's true in many cases. But when you look at Ephesians 2 that I just read (coughs) from a moment ago, the people who were adopted, spiritually adopted, it's not just poor, broken, needy children. It is that. But it's much worse. The condition is much, much worse. It's children who are objects of wrath, who follow the ruler of this world, Satan, gratifying the cravings of their sinful nature. Like I said last week, the child on the other side of the table has problems. Right? I used the example of the family who walked away from the table once they heard all of the problems that, you, that the child had. But what we must understand first and foremost is that we were the child on the other side of the table, and not just the child on the other side of the table, we were far worse 
than the child on the other side of the table. We weren't just children of parents that couldn't raise us. We were children of wrath, under condemnation before God. And so thank God that Jesus did not take the same approach with us. Thank God He didn't walk walk away from the table. You see, the, the cost was the cross for Him. It cost Him the cross. It cost Him His Son so that we might have the reward of His inheritance. And so Jesus determined to redeem us and He died to rescue us. And so I would say praise God for His resolve. Praise God that He sent His Son that we might receive the position of sons. I'll close with this, verses 6 and 7. As great as the reality of being a son is, the gospel could stop there. And if it did stop there, we would certainly fall to our knees in worship. But verses 6 and 7 actually reveal a little bit more good news. The gospel doesn't just declare us justified, nor does it just give us a new position, a new status. Verses 6 and 7, we're we're not just adopted by Christ, but we actually become co-heirs with Christ. To be an heir with Christ is to receive the blessings He receives. Right, His inheritance becomes our inheritance. Now I think three blessings are worth mentioning in particular quickly here. First, we have an eternal Father just as Jesus has an eternal Father. When God becomes our Father, He assures us of His love. Even when we fall, He's our Father. When we succeed, He's our Father. This is good news for those who have fallen prey to sin. Like any good father, God may discipline us, but He will do it because He has a deep love and affection for us. And so we have an eternal Father. But second, our adoption by God means that we have an eternal family. We've already seen in chapter 3, verse 28, that in Christ we have union with one another. And those in God's, as, God, as those in God's family, we, we relate to one another, right? As brothers and sisters. Amazingly, in Romans 8, 17, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And elsewhere, Hebrews 2, 11, we're told that we are brothers with Jesus. He is our elder brother, though not in the way that, that will compromise his divinity as some cults believe. It's not about that. We're, we're not equal to Jesus, but Scripture does teach that everything belongs to Jesus belongs to us as co-heirs. So what belongs to him belongs to us. Now, that's good news, but I would be remiss if I didn't also inform you that it's sort of bad news as well. Say, so, well, how could it possibly be bad news? It's bad news because Jesus suffered and the world hated him. Therefore, being in the family of Jesus may cause us to suffer. Now, I pray that none of us are ever put in the position where, where we might have to literally give our lives for Christ, but it may happen. And what was true of Christ will be true of us then as well. But when we think about the suffering of Jesus, this theology of suffering, if you will, we think about the price that was paid for us to be a part of the family of God, then it puts into perspective all of our suffering. It puts into perspective all of our pain and all of our sorrow and all of our hurt and all of our brokenness here in this world. But it also puts into perspective the perceived inconveniences that we might face by engaging in adoption engaging in a foster care 
relationship, engaging in a respite care relationship with a family. All of a sudden, when we start to understand what it costs Christ to adopt us, we become increasingly willing to open up our lives, to open up our home, to open up our families so that others may be brought in to the family. I believe it was David Platt once said, the very best way to fulfill the Great Commission is through adoption. The reason he said that wasn't just because you have the opportunity to adopt from all the nations. The reason he said that is because it communicates so clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. It communicates so clearly what it means to be justified and to be adopted. And so it's, it's good news in the sense that, that we are co-heirs with Christ, but it can be bad news in the sense that we must be willing to embrace suffering in this life. It could cost us our lives. But again, it's good news because if we share in His suffering, Romans eight seventeen tells us we'll also share in His glory. Together we will enjoy all that Christ has for all eternity. Listen, this is a good family. This is a family that you want to be adopted into. Third, I close with this. In addition to having an eternal father and an eternal family, we have an eternal home. When you're brought into a new home and the adoption is complete, it's not temporary. God has sent His Son. Listen, He sent His Son into this world that we might receive position the position of sons and when we trust in Christ for salvation God takes us into his home as heirs and nobody nobody no thing is taking us away nobody robs us of our eternal home if we've been adopted as sons in Christ and so don't miss the theology of adoption in this passage don't miss what it means to be sons of God brought into the family through the suffering, the sacrifice, and ultimately the victory of Christ. And let that shape our understanding of spiritual adoption, but let it also shape our understanding of the mission of adoption that we have before us. As Rebecca comes, I invite you to stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word this morning. Lord, as we consider what has been written, we consider what has been said. Lord, may we just may we just dwell on what it means to be a son of God. What it means to be in the family of God. Lord, it's, it's really impossible for any one of us to know the depths of what anyone else is going through. But Lord, here's what we pray in these moments. If there's one here this morning who is not a part of the family of God, may they know with all of their heart that this is the opportunity. It's the opportunity to come before you a holy God and be justified, forgiven of all our law-breaking, forgiven of all of our sinfulness, to be justified. And not just justified because the gospel didn't stop with justification, but to be adopted, to be welcomed into your family, to have an eternal father, to have an eternal family, to have an eternal home. God, I pray that there would not be a person that leaves this place this morning not sure of where their eternal home is. But Lord, for all of those who are confident in you as eternal father, who are sound in the eternal family, who long to see that eternal home. 
May we meditate on what it means to be truly adopted into this family. May we have a greater understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with you, how we came into that relationship with you, and how that should affect the relationship that we have with others. May today be the day that some of us answer the call to step out of our comfort zones, to display the gospel through adoption, through foster care, or through respite care. To step up on the front lines and say, I know that Jesus suffered for me, so I will endure a little bit of doubt. I will endure a little bit of questioning, maybe even a little bit of suffering for the sake of the gospel in this community. That my friends, that my family, that my neighbors, that the nations may see what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for all that you have done, all that you will do through the through the proclaiming of your word this morning. We ask all this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.